I was taking a break one time and the librarian whom I've gotten to know quite well came up to me and said, Mr. Kim, would you like to watch North Korean comedy film? She said it so secretively. I don't know why she said it like that. When was the last time you wanted to go somewhere but got a hard uh-uh? access denied. We've been reading the books that take us behind the metaphorical iron curtains into forbidden territory, and we've lived to tell the tale. Welcome to the Boundless Book Club, the podcast where we boldly read books that give us the access all areas pass. You are here with Andrea, Annabelle, and me, Ahlam. We will be joined shortly by writer and translator Emmanuel Kim, who was a specialist in North Korean culture, and he knows a thing or two about what goes on behind the scenes in one of the least visited countries in the world. He's not only been there, but mined a culture that is off limits to most of us and literally written the books. So I'm curious to know where everyone's going to take us today. What books have you chosen? I am going to take you to Uganda in 1972. And that's because I'm talking about a book called Kololo Hill by Nima Shah. It's recently published, so fresh out of the book box. It is essentially about the thousands of Asians who were forced out of Uganda, told they had 90 days to leave Uganda in 1972 by Idi Amin. So you meet this family in this community in Kololo Hill in Uganda in 1972. And it's clear that they're not, they're not struggling. They're fairly well off. Um, they own this shop that's doing quite well. And you've got these newlyweds, Asha and Pran. They're still very much in love with each other. But he is hiding something from, Pran is hiding something from Asha. He doesn't know quite what it is. There's also the story of Pran's parents, particularly his mother, Jaya, as well. So there are flashbacks to kind of an earlier generation's experience of coming to Uganda from India. And there's this wonderful moment where Jaya is talking about traveling alone to fo like follow her husband to Uganda. She's traveling all alone from India on this steamership and just kind of this visceral experience of getting there and being hit with how different everything is. And then trying to communicate in Swahili with this little scribbled out list that her husband has given her while he goes off to work of what these words mean and just kind of how she manages a household, not understanding the language or understanding the culture. Um, and then it flits back and forth between kind of her her memories and then other characters in the story as well so it's this back and forth between these generations mm -hmm. um and you get a kind of rough introduction to these characters and then very soon the very quickly you through the characters you understand that life is getting a little bit difficult for everybody there are there's talk of soldiers, they, they already at the start of the story can't really go outside wearing any jewelry because they know that they're just going to be stopped and it's going to be taken off them. Um, and there are all these kind of checkpoints and stuff. And there's a lot of there's a lot of fear because obviously Idi Amin has already staged his coup in 1971. So that has already taken place. But the characters at the beginning, they just say, yeah, this will pass. You know, this has happened before. He'll you know, he'll be out soon enough. Let's not worry about it. So they just kind of go about their daily business, just try and get by, try and avoid conflict wherever possible. Until one day they're watching that famous speech that Idi Amin gives, where he tells all the Asians in Uganda who were brought there years prior to kind of build railways um, under the British Empire in, in Uganda. And just told, you know, you have 90 days to leave. And 
these are people who have like you know multiple generations of have lived their mm. like their family homes their lives you know what would you do if you were given 90 days and told you cannot live here anymore so that's why I've chosen this for access denied because I was just thinking that seems like one of the cruelest access denied moments is okay so this is your home mm. you're not we're going to deny you access to it forever now so you can't you can't live here anymore um so what I want to read to you is the bit where they're kind of watching this unfold in disbelief. So Idi Amin is giving his speech. He addressed the viewers. The Asians came to Uganda to build the railway. The railway is finished. They must leave now. I will give them 90 days to pack up and go. Asians have milked the cow, but did not feed it. He goes on to say, Africans are poor. Asians are rich. Asians are sabotaging the economy of Uganda. They have refused to allow their daughters to marry Africans. They have been here for 70 years. Did he say leave in 90 days? Motichan laughed, a chai-coloured spray showering across his white shirt. He's lost his mind this time, Asha shook her head. What will it be tomorrow? People whose names end in K must only walk on the right side of the street. He wants us to leave everything and never come back, said Jaya. He makes these rules up as he goes along, said Asha. Amin changed his mind from one day or hour to another, all the more reason not to take him seriously. Sabotaging the economy? We helped build the economy, said Pran. He'll change his mind tomorrow, Motichan waved his hand in the air. No point worrying. Let's turn it off. Idi's given us enough entertainment for tonight. Pran walked up to the set. The screen went black. But of course, he didn't change his mind um, and they did have to leave. So the rest of the story is how they have to have to leave in 90 days. And they travel to the UK and kind of what life is like for them there versus the life that they had in Uganda. And then particularly for a character like Jaya, who's, who's older, she's already made that journey from a culture that she loved to one that she didn't know. She's also wondering, you know, can I make this journey again? Can mm. I do the same thing over again at my age, you know? So a really wonderful story, very pacey. You feel immediately like you're in Uganda in 1972. Um, all the sights, smells, sounds, they're all there really really wonderful piece of recent historical fiction i highly recommend it oh that sounds like a great one i'd love to read that it really does um it's it's not wanting to get too political but as you were talking i was thinking how this is actually to some extent still happening that people are denied their citizenship that yep. they've grown up with yep um so it's very even though it's historical it's also very um contemporary I, there were all these stories, you know how we love travel fiction and I, and I was thinking about, you know, talking about, so Michael Palin's North Korea journal is also very good and I was considering talking about that for this podcast as well, but I thought it would be, I thought it would be odd to have a show or have an episode where we were talking about being denied access and not talk about in some way that exile and so many books mm. about that. Yeah. yeah, it's like the ultimate access denied for human beings like around the world where you're not de when you're denied your home or denied a place you grew up or a family or you know not being able to go home is, yeah. is the most painful access denied probably. Books and particularly fiction that's you know written as well as this is a great way of of empathizing and, and understanding just the, maybe the tip of the iceberg of what what that's like. Sorry to bring it down. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a great one. I can bring some sensationalism to the conversation if you like. Yeah, yes, please. Um, 
Yeah. <laughs> so my book is called Fog Island, and it's by an author called Mariette Lindstein. And the book, which is fiction, is really mixed up with her personal life. So I have to talk a little bit about both. So for 25 years, Mariette was a member of the Church of Scientology, which whether you're religious or not, I think we all have questions about Scientology. So she was working at their international HQ in California and then had this dramatic escape with her husband called Dan Kuhn. And she had these anxiety attacks. So she began writing to, to process all of that um, anxiety. And as readers, who people who love books, I find it quite fascinating to have a religion that's actually based on a science fiction book. And just as a little side note, that if in a hundred years time, if people create a religion based on his dark materials, I think I'd be okay with that. Um, (laughs) But sorry, back to Scientology. So there's so much secrecy surrounding this particular religion, which is why the book is so interesting to me. And it's written like a real thriller, page turner, uh, but it draws on her experience of being drawn into a cult and then wanting to leave. So the main character is Sophia, who's like, young she's just finished university and she goes to this uh, like new age resort on an island in the south of Sweden which is absolutely stunning really beautiful sort of summer paradise and she goes there with her friend for a couple of weeks for a retreat and then her friend leaves to go on like backpacking in Greece or something and while she's there, she has, you know, she's just graduated from university, so she doesn't have a job, she doesn't have plans, and they offer her a job to set up the, the resort's library, which is proper CV building stuff. So she thinks about it, and, you know, everybody she meets there is really lovely, it's beautiful, it's a very expensive place to go for a retreat, and if she takes a job, she'll be living there. And, you know, she'll have all her accommodation and food and all her expenses paid. So what's the catch? Quite, right? So she says yes. And then autumn comes and this dense fog that the island's named for rolls in and tourists stop coming. And it becomes very clear that the enigmatic leader of this group rules with an iron fist because it's a cult (laughs) yeah yeah so he gets more and more controlling there are no phones no computers no contact with mainland um there are electric fences around the grounds Mm. and she realizes that no one ever leaves the island (laughs) (laughs) so not only can you getting this is not about getting in this but getting out as well yeah, so so this is it. Um, so I'm not gonna say anymore, but it's it's like it's a really thrilling read, and even more so because you know that she is drawing on some real experience. Um, so for anyone who would like to read more about the subject, her husband, who I mentioned earlier, Dan Kuhn, has co-written a book together with Ron Miscavige, who's the father mm. of the leader of the Scientologists so that's another book that I think would be quite interesting and then obviously all of L. Ron Hubbard's 600 
science fiction works would be something else that one might want to read. And interestingly, when I was researching the book and the author and, and Dan and Ron, because I took a little side trip, they all have websites dedicated to discrediting them, which just make everything seem so much more real. So that's mm. also something that you can go and look up if you want to know exactly all the ways that they've confessed their sins, because that's also also out there. And it's a great read. It's a page, like It keeps you up turning the pages at night. I feel like it's not like anything that I've read before. So I'd be interested to read that too. Yeah, apparently it's a trilogy. So there are two more books that I think the second one's just been published in English and the third one is coming at some stage. So would you read them or do you feel like you've read one and that's that's enough now? I think I would read them because I, I, I find it really fascinating because it's so it's so cloak and dagger. Mm. You know, even after you leave, you don't really get to leave. I mean, are we ever going to find out what's true? Probably not. But it's interesting mm. to, to learn what you can. Yeah. I had a, an interesting experience in, this was a few in years ago now. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I got approached by one. <laughs> no, this is, a, this is a Sharjah book fair. Oh, not a cult. It, it does sound like my kind of cult. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. Oh, uh, no, I was walking around the stands at Sharjah book fair and noticing all the lovely books la 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 and obviously because I'm you like books (laughs) (laughs) because I'm me and we are who we are when we see books we we linger right you know like to peruse and look through and just enjoy and soak up Mm -hmm. the atmosphere I lingered a little too long near and I didn't notice until I looked up near the L. Ron Hubbard stand they had an entire stand wow and they were looking for people. Like, and I walked past and one of them tried to follow me to get my attention. <laughs> and I just like made a beeline, just nope, walking away, walking away, walking away. Oh my God, that is creepy. But yeah, they, try and, <laughs> they really do try and like talk to you and get you on side, even at the L. Ron Hubbard stand. <laughs> <laughs> he yeah. wrote so much. 600 works of fiction that's like it's a lot and he also had a career in the military before that how does one person do that I think he had help have a super mind yeah maybe you think so yeah I feel like he had assistant uh, assistant assistance (laughs) (laughs) I feel like he has a cult of writers that write for him (laughs) maybe that's how it started (laughs) okay so I'll tell you about my book now so my book is a non-fiction uh, and uh, it's by an author called Anita Morjani, and this is her story. It's called Dying to Be Me. And Anita Morjani is, um, comes of, of uh, Indian background. She's uh, Cindy, and she grew up in Hong Kong. And, uh, you know, she, lives, she grows up in a very traditional Cindy family, wanting to marry her off early. She, you know, her life is just very ordinary day you know life in in a very you know regular family setting and everything and then she at some point in her life she meets uh, the love of her life who thinks very similarly to her and she kind of breaks out of this cultural 
um, expectations that her family and the community have of her. And she just starts to live the life that she's always wanted. And then uh, sadly, she uh, gets cancer. And for four years, she's battling this cancer. And she goes through a journey where initially she says, I don't want to do chemotherapy. I'm just going to go for holistic healing. And she looks up all these alternative healing solutions. And then she goes to India for a while in Pune and finds a yogi master and tries to balance her body and um, avoid the treatment. She comes back. It doesn't work. And then her, her health deteriorates really badly. And she gets to the point where um, she's in a coma and her, her lymphoma gets really bad and she's in a coma and she has what, you know, is known as the near death experience. And, um, I think anyone who's lost a loved one goes through a phase where you wonder like, well, unless you have a very strong belief in, in, in something, but otherwise I think you, you, you always tend to wonder where they are, what, where is the soul, you know, where are they? Do you visit the grave? Do you not? Do you, you know, and where's the soul? Is there a soul? And all of these questions. And I think she explains this experience that she's had. And actually, a lot of people share this exact same experience across different platforms. And I've researched this quite a bit to because I'm very interested in this concept. When she's in a coma and the doctors tell her family that she's um that's it. Like she's, it's a matter of days or something. She's not going to make it. Her organs have stopped functioning. There's no brain activity. Her can there's cancer, um, the size of lemons across her body and it's spread everywhere. But she explains the state that she was in, which is total and complete awareness of everything happening everywhere. This so, is when she was in the coma. Yes. And she said she, she was suddenly free of the pain. She felt this, like she was in this euphoric state of like just complete freedom. And uh, she didn't have, um, and she could see her family struggling. And she, she really wanted them to, to know that she was okay. She was pain-free. She could see them not to be upset, be happy for the state that she was in. And in that time, she was aware of conversations happening four doors down between different doctors. She was aware of where her brother was on the plane. She saw all of this. Um, she explains the state where she was everywhere at the same time and just um, felt this complete freedom and that the universe just was making complete sense to her. She was everything and everyone at the same time. And then she also has this interaction with her father who passed away. Not that she saw him, but she felt his presence in a form that she can't really explain. And it was almost like she had a dialogue with him, but not in words because they're not in physical bodies. But she felt this, uh, she felt her father giving her the feeling like she's loved, but this is not her time. And that, she could go back and she she has this you know in that state it's almost like she didn't want to come back but then just knows that if she does come back to her body that she can heal herself because of what she now knows and what she just experienced which is the ultimate truth for her 
uh, in that what's beyond is incredible. It's, you know, it, it doesn't stop with our physical presence. And then she comes back into her body and her condition miraculously, like the doctors cannot explain it until today, like in her reports and everything, that she was cancer free within six days. That's mad. Yeah. yeah. And were they were they treating her while she was in the coma to like what was happening? So there was there is things like when you read when you read there's moments where there's you know she's like there's so much fluid in her chest and they're like <clears throat> releasing the fluid. You know, she was doing chemo and radiation up to the last minute. And then when she comes back, they continue one or two cycles of chemo for her. But, you know, one of the doctors says, listen, lady, however way I look at it, you should be dead. Like, <laughs> and for me, it's not so much, I mean, I, I don't know what to believe about the physical healing part and, and what that's like. And I, until I meet her, <laughs> like, I don't know what I will believe, but it's just that, that, that state of the near death experience that actually a lot of people talk about, which science has still not a, been able to prove or explain, but there are a lot of people who go in comas or have near death experience or accidents and things that have this out of body experience. And they describe a very similar thing, you know, the light, the freedom, the being everywhere, this sense of unconditional love, the interacting with loved ones that passed, all of those things. Um, and uh, and it's, it's always been very interesting to me. It's, it's also a very personal book to me because I'm someone who lost my mother to cancer. And actually, this is the last book that she read uh, in her life. And it's something that gave her this sense of not fearing death anymore. Um, and that's a very powerful thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a really, that's, that must be a very special book to you then. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I was always afraid to read it until this, this episode. And I, I kind of had an excuse to, to go to it and finally do it. And um, yeah, it's a, it was, it was, it was an emotional experience and it's, it's almost getting into her mind in those very last um, weeks and thinking, okay, what, what was, you know, how, what was her journey like in the end? And if anything, I'm glad she got to read this because, you know, removing that fear um, is a powerful thing. We should, we should talk <laughs> about death more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I don't just mean on the podcast. I feel like it's, and I suppose particularly now, but it frustrates me sometimes, particularly in certain, certain cultures are very good at talking about death and it being part of their daily lives. Um, yeah. And other cultures really aren't. The Day of the Dead in Mexico, for example, like I, mm -hmm. that, that to me, it just is, is perfect. Like that, that to me is healthy. It's you know? great. It's a healthy relation. You have a relationship with, with that whole process. And I think in certain parts of the world, particularly from what I've heard of people maybe in, in the UK, it's just like, you don't, you don't talk about it. You know, it's just not yeah. something that is ever addressed. It's the elephant in the room. And I just don't think that's particularly healthy. It's yeah. the same in our culture as well. I mean, definitely it's something that's, you know, you don't really talk about, but it's, it's, it's as natural as birth. It's something that everyone will go through and it's important to, 
know your relationship with it and understand it the best that you can and know where you, you know, what your beliefs are so that you can make your peace with what that is and make the most of your life. I read a, I read a psychology book where they spoke about how if you are close to the process of birth and dying in your daily life so it's not necessarily cultures but if you live on a farm if you Mm -hmm. you know if you have animals then you have a much more natural relationship with death and you tend to process it better because it's something that's not hidden away and it's just you understand you have a we all know about the circle of life but you have a more um complete view of it and how Mm -hmm. it's something that is it, it happens it isn't good or bad. It just is. It just yeah. is. Okay. So we were talking about access denied. I think the ultimate place that comes to mind when we think of that is North Korea. So let's speak to Emmanuel Kim all about that. We are now joined by Emmanuel Kim, author of Laughing North Koreans, The Culture of Comedy in Film and Rewriting Revolution, Women, Sexuality and Memory in North Korean Fiction. He has also translated Friend, one of the most popular novels in North Korea, into English, which gives us a fascinating view of what normal life in North Korea can look like. Emmanuel joins us now from Washington, US, and I think it's um, nighttime where you are. It is indeed, yes. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us in the middle of the night. Well, thank you for inviting me. Well, we we are excited about this. And I would like to start by asking you about your personal experience of North Korea, if you've been, how that, how that works. Yeah, so I've been to North Korea twice. The first time was in 2008, and that was with a tour group. Uh, there were only about six or seven of us. It was a small group, um, and we got to tour uh, the capital city, Pyongyang and some other towns nearby. And it was a week long and it was nice. Um, Got to see a lot of the touristy sites, uh, museums, uh, monuments and so forth. We got to eat some uh, delicious food. So all in all, it was a very good package. The second time I went was in 2015 and that was by myself. And the reason I went to North Korea at that time was to meet the author, Peng Nam-yong, the author who wrote uh, Friend, and I met with him. Uh, we chatted the entire afternoon, and we were only scheduled, uh, or I was only scheduled to meet with him once, but he asked to meet two more days. So uh, we, we ate, and we hung out, we even played table tennis together. Uh, it was excellent. It was an unforgettable moment for me. Amazing. Who won? Well, you know, he's really good. Okay, I'm going to tell you this, okay? He's really, really good. So basically, I stepped aside and I allowed my tour guide to play with him because my tour guide was excellent. Um, (laughs) And the two just went at it and it was just really fun to watch. Is table tennis like one of the national sports that people get together to do? Yeah, I mean, I'm not... I'm not sure if it's a national sport, but it certainly is something that uh, they like to do. I mean, they have um, like a club. So it's you go to uh, some building and it's just full of table tennis uh, tables and people are just playing. 
and they're good. They're not just recreational players. They're like preparing for the Olympics or something, right? They're so good. When we were walking along the street, we saw uh, people in the neighborhood playing volleyball. That seemed to be another uh, favorite pastime. Soccer, you see people, uh, kids playing soccer all the time. Uh, basketball, I haven't seen too much, but I know that they do play that as well. But volleyball was the one that all the neighborhood people came out of and played. It's really cool. Yeah, this is fascinating. Um, one of the great things, one of the things that I loved when I heard about Friend and I read the book was just that it's one of the kind of few examples, it's quite rare, of, of kind of an insight into that culture that isn't written from the perspective of somebody who's defecting. And it's interesting from the perspective as a reader, but as someone who had come to this book and tell us what it was like as a translator and kind of the things that surprised you as you were translating this story about that culture. Yeah, so before I got a hold of Friend, um, I read hundreds and hundreds of short stories and other novels uh, prior to the 1980s. And typically, the socialist hero is flawless. There's, it, 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 he or she is an infallible hero. And although, you know, in the United States, we have Superman uh, and all the other kind of comic superheroes who are almost you know, indestructible, right? Uh, you know, we, we, we sort of like that, right? We like a hero that is indestructible, infallible. Um, but you get tired of it really quickly, right? If, if all heroes are infallible, then uh, okay, right? Um, but when I came across Friend, not just Friend, uh, other novels around the 1980s, uh, starting from like the late 1970s, the hero has a problem, right? And in this novel, Friend, the main character is not actually the woman who wants a divorce. It's actually the judge who is presiding over this and trying to keep the family intact. He too has some family issues and he too has some marital um, things that he needs to sort out before he can sort out other people's marital problems. So I really like that about the novel and it was really attractive in that sense. Um, I could relate to the characters far better than I had in previous novels and short stories. So uh, I think there was a shift, right, in terms of depicting uh, the socialist hero. And that's why I made that particular novel, Friend, my focus of my first book. And I called it Rewriting Revolution because it's no longer that gung-ho revolutionary who's always looking at the party, the nation, the leaders for some kind of um, you know, wisdom or empowerment, but it is he or herself trying to work out uh, you know, their problems. Um, and I thought that was really relatable. I have a question about Friend, which as, I'm, as I've been reading it, it just strikes me that the the men in the book fall in love with these women who are very unassuming, they are uh, modest, and that is the quality that they are drawn to. Do you think that is actually how society looks on women? It's supposed to. So you're only supposed to appreciate your partner, not for their outer beauty, but for their ideological, socialist, uh, mindset, right? And that is supposed to be what's really attractive. 
but it's a short story. It's fiction, right? So it's supposed to educate the people to become like wow. women, like these men. Um, but what's interesting about Friend is, yes, the woman begins as an unassuming woman who works at a factory. But later on, she becomes a celebrity singer. And mm. she is dressed in you know, celebrity style uh, or a celebrity type clothes, meaning lavish outfits, perfume, makeup that makes her stand out from all the other women, right? So uh, that's where sort of the rift begins w uh, between her husband and herself. Uh, he still wants her to be that same innocent, modest woman, but she's like, no, you know what? I'm a celebrity now, so I'm gonna live it up, right? And, and, and I find that to be interesting because um, a lot of North Korean women, especially the ones in Pyongyang, uh, are very lavishly dressed and beautiful. Right? Uh, and I'm not sure every time they put on makeup, or guys as well, they put on a gel, a nice suit. I'm not sure every time they do their hair, they're thinking revolution, revolution, revolution. <laughs> I, I really think it's to be attractive or to be appear uh, to be attractive, right? And attract the other person. So, um, yeah, to me, that's really interesting about the novel. It's real, right? It, she's dressing up because she wants to be beautiful and she wants to be seen. Yeah, she's obviously very ambitious, but yes. that's not something that's celebrated. Right. It's not supposed to be. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's interesting because in my mind I've always because you know knowing that there's kind of an approved list of like haircuts that you can have and things like that and knowing that people can't do say this with their hair <laughs> I've always had it in my head that everyone is kind of like a cookie cutter reproduction of each other and so it, I think you know reading reading the book it was one of the first moments where I was like oh, maybe maybe actually within those restraints it is a little bit different. That's a good point. Um, so the two times that I visited North Korea, I've seen various styles. There's really no strong sense of restriction. Uh, the men typically have the same haircut. I think that's just men being lazy and they just go, yeah, give me number two. And then they just cut it <laughs> two style. But I think the women tend to show a little bit more individuality and fashion sense when it comes to the way they look. Uh, the way they behave. So, uh, yeah, I've seen women with all kinds of um, different kinds of uh, clothes, uh, shoes, accessories, and hairstyles, makeup, and so forth. So, um, yeah, when you go to Pyongyang, it's really not a cookie cutter, uh, as one would think. Have you have you um, got any academic peers in North Korea that you are in touch with or that you met when you were there? Is that something that happens? Yeah, so I went to the Kim Il-sung University and I met uh, a, a, a historian who um, shared with me a brief history of North Korea, which I already knew. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. But then, um, you know, we went further on and we talked about Chuche ideology. We talked about other um, um, concepts uh, and that. So we were only scheduled to meet for about oh, 30 minutes but it ended up being two, like almost two and a half hours. Um, and in the end, she asked me uh, if she could ask a question. And she asked me about uh, the Black Lives Movement. Uh, 
she asked about why U.S. is so obsessed with guns. Why does everyone have guns? And why is there so much gun violence in the U.S.? Is it okay for citizens to kill each other? Uh, is the government going to allow that? These were very interesting questions. And I was really rather shocked um, at the level of her knowledge, not just throwing out BLM or uh, gun violence in, in America, but the level of her knowledge was very intriguing. And so, yeah, at the end, it was like a two and a half hour uh, conversation. It was brilliant. One thing that we haven't spoken about that I've found absolutely fascinating ever since I read it in your biography um, and heard you talking about it at the festival. When I finished Friend, I discovered that not only did I want to read more North Korean literature, but also that I wanted to watch North Korean comedy films. And the existence of these, I, I completely passed me by and I feel such FOMO. Please tell me how you like stumbled across these and kind of what your favorite one is and if you'd recommend them to anybody listening as well. So when I was doing my research in 2009 and 2010 in South Korea, I was in the National Library where the North Korean section is housed. And I went in there like nine o'clock in the morning, as soon as they opened until they closed at 5 p.m. And I just started reading everything that they had. Uh, I was taking a break one time and the librarian whom I've gotten to know quite well came up to me and said, Mr. Kim, would you like to watch North Korean comedy film? She said it so secretively. I don't know why she said it like that. But uh, I said, uh, yes, I didn't know they had a comedy film. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, they have a, a VCR TV set inside the library. So I popped it in, put the headphones on, and I started laughing so hard. I was a little embarrassed for the people around me. Um, and then I realized that it was an entire series. So I saw the entire series. Um, and I decided, okay, this is going to be my second research project. And then I really got into comedy films. I, I you know, got a hold of as many comedy films as I could. It's impossible to get every single one of them um, simply because of the availability and they're not all on YouTube. Well, at the time it was not, none of them were on YouTube. So uh, it was really difficult to come by. Uh, I had to purchase it through like a third party vendor and so forth. Uh, their humor is a little bit different. So it's not like your typical uh, Western European style comedy. Um, it's it's really it, one might say it's almost dramatic. So uh, some people have described it as a serious film with a little bit of humor in it, but that's not true because they have their own category uh, called comedy. So when all these films are under that category, I'm going to assume that the purpose of it was for laughter. Um, now, when I showed it to my father, who would appreciate that generation a lot of the films that i watched were in the 70s he thought it was hilarious so i think it really is a generational thing uh they don't have slapstick so someone's slapping or throwing a pie in someone's face uh tripping slipping and whatnot they don't really have that a lot of wordplay right um dry humor and situational comedy that's what they're really after so it's not so much that um, you know, they don't use vulgar language. They don't use sex as a, a, 
laughing device. Uh, it's very clean, but the situation is absolutely hilarious. Okay. So it's like kind of comedy of errors sometimes almost. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, comedy of errors is exactly what they like. So mistaken identities. They love mistaken identities. I, I, I would equate it to like a comedy in Hollywood in the 1940s and 50s. I, I just wanted to ask, does this, is this also reflected in stand-up comedy? Do they have stand-up comedy as such? Yeah, so recently, I, well, not recently, I, I've seen this um, gentleman who does stand-up comedy in North Korea. Uh, he's been around for quite some time now. I'm not sure how much uh, stand-up comedy works in North Korea. South Korea has tried it a few times, and it's failed. So South Koreans just don't like stand-up comedy. They just don't get it. Interesting. Um, yeah, so... Um, what North Koreans tend to do is they get up on stage and they have a skit and that's always kind of fun. So it's like SNL, right? They do like a short skit right? and it's supposed to be funny like that. Do you feel like through, through these books and through these films, um, I mean, the title of this podcast is Access Denied. Do you, do you feel like as an outsider to that culture, we're getting a, a true understanding or is, is that just a too difficult a question to answer? Yeah, I think that's a little too much for me to do in the in those two books. Um, I'm really just giving a glimpse of North Korean life, uh, other than missile crisis, starvation, mm. human rights issues. Not that those are not important, right? It's just North Korea is not composed of just those, uh, you know, things. Uh, it's more than that, you know. Um, and I think we, ha in order to get a little bit closer to understanding North Korean people, North Korean culture, the country itself. We have to understand what they read, what they enjoy, uh, and what they enjoy watching, right? uh, laughing, and what they listen to, what kind of songs do they listen to, and so forth. So for me, that was my biggest aim, just to inch a little bit closer to the culture. Right? And I thought comedy films would be a, a great way of getting into culture. Uh, and one of the chapters in my book actually talks about just actors, all the North Korean co comedians and all the actors who really impacted the society. Because when we go watch a film, we say, hey, let's go watch so-and-so, Jim Carrey's in it. Uh, why do we always say, you know, some actor is in that film? We always associate that film with an actor. Well, the North Koreans do the same thing, right? They say, oh, let's go watch this film. This person's in it. Oh, yes, of course, our, our favorite actor. And then they would go watch it. Um, so it's not necessarily getting their weekly dosage of ideology. It's really for entertainment, right? They really enjoy it. And a lot of the defectors that I've spoken to uh, regarding these uh, comedy films and even dramatic films, they remember it, right? It's, it's, it's in their memory bank, right? And they go, oh, yes. I remember the time when I saw that and the theater was crowded and blah, blah, blah. So it's a, it, it's a different register in your brain, right? So um, I find that to be absolutely fascinating. And when I meet with defectors, that's what I like to talk about. I'm also really curious about what, what reading looks like in North Korea and just, do they have bookshops? Do they, is it all libraries? Um, how does their library system work? It's a fantastic question. Yeah. So when I was there in 2008, I saw many people reading. 
Uh, but mostly it was hard copies of newspapers or physical copies of books. Uh, but when I went back in 2015, everyone was on their mobile phone. Oh. They're reading off their mobile. So they're, they're reading the newspaper off the mobile. They're, they're, you know, they're getting something from their mobile, playing games on their mobile. Um, and they have an ebook style format where they can just read from their mobile phone. Uh, they do have bookshops. They're not independently owned. Uh, and when you go to these bookshops, you have the new releases, the bestseller uh, column or section, uh, and all the political speeches made by the leaders. You got their tourist section as well for all the tourists who want to know more about North Korea. Come over here and get your pick up your tourist book. Um, yeah, I, I don't. I don't tend to go in that section. I tend to just stay in the uh, section where North Koreans are reading, right? And they love like detective novels. They love crime novels. It's fascinating, right? Um, and then you got your typical socialist style, uh, praising the leader uh, novels and whatnot, uh, but they're not independently owned. There is a library, a huge one. Uh, it's, it's called the Grand People's Hall uh, or something of that sort. And they claim to house like 6 million books. Uh, I don't know how truthful that is, uh, but that's what they say. And, you know, they claim that they have all the European books, like Jane Austen or whatnot. And if you ask the librarian, I think you're supposed to give her, if I remember correctly, you write down the title of the book, you hand her the slip, and then there's like this conveyor, um, like, a, like, a, like a metal box on a railway, and it shoots out goes to the uh, depot and then it picks up the book and then shoots back out and she goes, here you go. That's sort of the way it works. Um, but we ne we've never really tested it out. So I don't know how, how it really, really works. Uh, but then if you go to these study halls within the library, um, there are computers, there are, uh, there, there's one room where you can enjoy music. So you see people sitting there with headphones on, listening to music. Uh, other than that, you know, they're just study halls. So you go in there and you pick up a book and you sit there and read. And that's the purpose of the hall. Wow. That sound, definitely sounds uh, more kind of Futurama than, than I expected with the conveyor belt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and and it's, it's a huge building. So you can get lost in there. And, and there are like seminar rooms where people are learning Japanese, Chinese, English, and other languages as well. Uh, and, and these rooms tend to be packed with North Koreans wanting to learn a foreign language. So it's absolutely fascinating. Emmanuel, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you coming on the show. For anyone who hasn't read Friend, I recommend you do so. It is available now from all good bookshops. Uh, thanks also to you, our listeners, for tuning in. If you want to get in touch, you can do so on email or social media. We are at Emirates Lit Fest on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Next time, we'll be talking about unpopular opinions, so stay tuned. For now, thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.